Thank you. Good morning. How are y'all? We're going to be in Numbers chapter 22. My Father's Day gift to myself is that we are going to continue in Numbers. Okay? No Father's Day sermon. We got great fathers. You don't need to hear four reasons how to be a, a better dad. Okay? I'm going to preach hard for your wife. She's the one who needs to hear it. Just kidding. Numbers 22. And we're going to be in verse 7 through 21 today. So, Lord, in Jesus' name, we ask that the sweet presence of the Holy Spirit would minister to us as we study this word. Lord, we believe this is God-breathed. We believe this is authoritative over our lives. So would you minister? Would you speak? Lord, would you deliver us? Come on, in Jesus' name, Lord, we want to serve you faithfully for the entirety of our lives. Satisfy our souls this morning in the word of God. We love you. We love you. We love you. Come on, it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all the saints say amen. Amen. All right, Numbers 22. All right, a little nerd information for a second, okay? I know you guys like the nerd info. There's an uh, archaeological find that's really interesting that sheds light on our text today. And it's called the, the Deir Allah. That's actually the name of the site where they, where they found it. Um, the, the, the Deir Allah, this, this archaeological f- finding, is dated to the year 750 BC. And what they found is an inscription. It's written in black and red ink on plaster um, on a wall. Now, uh, it's dated again to 750 BC, so you know what plaster does. If that's that old. It's it's broken and shattered, and so archaeologists kind of tried to piece it back together to see what it wrote. But this 750 BC artifact tells a story of a man named Balaam of Peor. Now, Balaam, the son of Peor, that's the Balaam that we're going to study in Numbers 22 here. But this artifact is pagan, and so it's telling the story of of Balaam interacting with pagan gods. Now, again, the 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 plaster's broken, and so the story that's being told is it's kind of broken up and pieced together. But it essentially says that that Balaam um, he had a, a a vision or an encounter with a pagan goddess. And, and she told Balaam that she would kindle a blazing fire over a region that would never go out. Essentially, she was going to pour out judgment on a region. And, and so the, the plaster says that Balaam was very distraught and that Balaam, the son of Peor, he began to communicate with other pagan gods to try to ask these pagan gods to talk her out of it. There, at some point, they're saying that there was going to be a, a great storm that was going to sweep over the region and destroy many homes and houses. And, uh, so, so, Balaam sees this kind of terrifying vision and he's trying to talk gods into stopping this great act of judgment. Now, what's interesting about this is obviously this is historical evidence that this man Balaam lived. Um, this has nothing to do with our biblical account. It's just telling us that Balaam, the son of Peor, was known throughout the regions as a great sorcerer, a great uh, pagan um 
visionary soothsayer. Uh, he's, he's known as a, a kind of, of prophet. And the nations, as they're having trouble with plagues and turmoil, they're all looking to Balaam to communicate with the gods. Again, this is extra biblical, has nothing to do with our biblical narrative, but it's evidence of the fact that Balaam was absolutely an historical figure and he was known to be a sorcerer, a spiritualist. Now, there are, in, in our day, the, there are regions where there's kind of a kingpin witch doctor um, who practices sorcery. I was driving over the bridge with my kids recently, and you see palm readers, and, and I tell my kids, don't mess with it. We're not messing with that. Um, I would, you know, you're, you're looking for something to watch. And even on TV, there's all of these people who will, uh, with tarot cards or telling the future. There, there are still today these individuals, even in our culture, who are known as great, um, spiritualists, prophets. And what we're going to learn in our text today is that Balaam, who again, we're finding writing about totally pagan culture, finding stories of his life. Balaam, who was known as this great mystical sorcerer, um, we're going to find in our scriptures that God is going to show us that, we'll read next week, that, that Balaam's donkey has more spiritual insight than Balaam. <laughs> Right. This is the, this is the intention of the narrative is that God's going to show us that historically this great sorcerer with all of his spirituality and wisdom is a moron. That his, that, that the wisdom of God, the, the, the true anointing of the prophets is far superior to the greatest spiritualists that the world has to offer with all of their pagan practices and all of their shedding of blood and all of their temporal sorcery. It falls flat before the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit that rests upon his people. And so we are seeing a kind of, um, what we're going to see in our text today is a kind of jockeying or a pitting between Balaam and what's under the text for the entirety of the text is all of Numbers follows one man. His name's Moses. Okay. God's speaking to Moses. So we're introduced to this narrative where Balaam, this prophet, is going to try to interact with the God of Scripture. And there's this kind of dichotomy happening throughout the text. And it's this. Balaam is not Moses. Balaam's donkey is smarter than Balaam. Moses is a man of God, anointed. Balaam is some kind of worldly sorcerer who God's going to expose as weak, immature, and, and foolish before the holy wisdom of our father. Now, we're going to see this kind of dichotomy shake out throughout Scripture on a, on a few instances. First, um, think of Moses. When Moses stands before Pharaoh and he throws down his staff, do you remember what the sorcerers do? They throw down their staffs, which also turn into snakes. And the, the testament of the Scriptures start to finish is that um, there are demonic powers that... The Bible, I think, would teach plainly that witch doctors and sorcerers, that some of them do have a legitimate amount of, of dark influence and power, and that as Christians we're commanded not to interact with that. But the, the idea here is Moses throws down his staff, it turns into a serpent, and then the great sorcerers of Egypt, you know, the, the feared, mystical magicians of Egypt, they turn their staff into a snake too. And then Moses' snake just slithers over and swallows the thing whole. 
And the imagery that God's continually communicating is that all of the dark, demonic, pagan, ritualistic power is frail and weak before the power of Almighty God. We move to Daniel and Daniel's life. Remember, uh, all of the sorcerers and magicians and astrologists, no one can interpret the dream. And the scripture says that Daniel and his friends, they were 10 times wiser than all of the magicians and astrologers. And in Daniel's life, God is putting on display that there are men who walk with me, who will walk with great power, anointing, and favor, and they will stomp on the wisdom of the world's sorcerers. My favorite, maybe my favorite, is Acts 13, where Paul is preaching the gospel before officials. And there's a man in the story uh, named Bar-Jesus, son of, uh, of, of Joshua. And, and this man is a sorcerer. He's performing great acts, and he's trying to sway people away from hearing the gospel. And you remember, Paul says to him, uh, essentially, you're wicked, and God will strike you blind for a number of days. And the man goes blind on the spot. And here we see Paul the Apostle standing before the great sorcerer of the town and saying, God strike you blind and the man falling flat before the anointing and the favor of God on the life of Paul the Apostle. Now that's what's shaking out in our narrative today. Uh, We'll read it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Verse 7 through 21. So the elders of Moab... And the elders of Midian, they departed with the feast for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam, and they gave them Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. And God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come curse them for me. Perhaps I should be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning, and he said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me, I will do. Come curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you too, please stay here tonight, that I may know uh, what more the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. So first, let's remind ourselves of where we are in this narrative. Last week we read that Israel, remember, they've yet to cross into the promised land, but they're getting really close to the Jordan River. And so this is late in Moses' life, and, and Israel is kind of anticipating their, uh, their, their next adventure mission to go into the promised 
land. But remember, God promised Israel a specific land. And we read last week that God said to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 2 that they should not fight with Moab. For Moab, uh, they were descendants of Lot, and they were not supposed to take Moab's land. But Balak, who's the king of Moab, he looks out over the land and he sees some two million people camping near him. He gets anxious and fearful and he decides that he's going to try to curse them to get them uh, weak before their God so that he can militarily have victory. Now, I don't, I don't know if we went here last week or not, but just the mere two million people camping around Moab's land is is creating fear in the heart of Moab, but it's also an economic problem. They're using up resources. Um, and so Balak needs them gone and needs them gone yesterday. But we said last week that Balak um, recognizes that there's, there's some kind of blessing that rests upon the people of Israel and that Moab has no hope of conquering her in battle. And so he decides that what he'll do is he'll send for Balaam, the son of Peor. Again, the great mystical sorcerer. And this sorcerer will come and curse Israel. And as he curses Israel, then Balak will attack and have some form of victory. And so that's where we land today is with Balak and, and of Moab and some of the Midianites coming to Balaam and saying, come curse these blessed people. So in our passage today, Balak sent messengers to Balaam. The scripture calls them princes. So they were people um, of status, dignitaries. He sent some princes with a divination fee to ask Balaam to curse. Now, let's for a moment define divination. That's not something we as Westerners think about. But it actually is something that the Bible teaches is a a legitimate dark form of power. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10. This is what God says to Israel. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of the nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, they listen to fortune tellers and and diviners, diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. So divination is defined as a pagan state or process of stating, determining the future through hidden knowledge, signs, omens, and supernatural powers. So God says to Israel in Deuteronomy, one of the reasons why I'm going to drive out the Canaanites from the land is because they practice divination, sorcery. They offer their children on on pagan altars to gain spiritual access. Um, They practice omens, uh, astrology. And God's going to say to Israel, that is an abomination before me. It sickens me. You are not to participate in any form of sorcery. And now from here, the dichotomy arises. 
If Israel is not to participate in any divination, they are not to participate in any form of sorcery. They're not to tell the future through omens and practices. How then should Israel walk? How then should Israel function? And here we see the dichotomy of Balaam the sorcerer practicing these arts, these divine arts through witchcraft and through, um, sacrifices and trying to appease pagan gods. He gains knowledge and power and he's pitted against the man that the entire narrative has talked about for, for, for the previous 20 chapters, Moses, who is not a sorcerer, but does walk in power. Moses does not practice witchcraft, but his face shines with the very glory of the Lord. Moses is not a man who practices magic arts to know the future, yet he is a prophet. The God of Israel has revealed his name to Moses, led Israel through the prophet of his choosing. Moses is a man in covenant, intimate relationship with God who hears the voice of the Lord, speaks. Moses throws down his staff, which turns into a serpent. Moses strikes a rock and water pours forth. Moses performs great miracles and signs, but he's never referred to as a sorcerer. He's a prophet. And so there's this distinction, this uh, underlaying, which is breaking out. Yahweh will forever be called the God of Moses. But nowhere in scripture is Yahweh ever referred to as the God of Balaam. And so Balaam recognizes, as Balak sends princes to him, that Israel does has relationship, interacts with one God. Israel is monotheist. They have relationship with one God. His name is Yahweh. And Balaam recognizes that if he's to curse Israel, he's going to have to do business with this God, Yahweh. But what we see in the text is that Balaam actually moves with a bit of caution. I don't think there's any reason to believe that Balaam has ever spoken with Yahweh, encountered Yahweh. This is his first dance with the God of Israel. And so he's actually a bit nervous. And he's going to kind of tread lightly. But at the same time, you have to hear me say this. This is Balaam's career. This is how he makes his income. And what he's being offered is the greatest opportunity of his business life. He's being offered more cash than, than he's ever known. And so from a businessman perspective, Balaam's not going to say, Hey, look, I don't really know anything about Yahweh. I'm going to pass that one by. No, he's going to tread lightly because his, his pockets would really like to have that cash. And so princes, dignitaries, honorable men come to Balaam. Now, what does that do for a man's ego? Strokes it real nicely, right? So Balaam's feeling his ego, and he says to these princes, these honoraries, these dignitaries, hey, stay with me tonight. Let me go try to speak to the God of Israel, and I'll tell you what he says. So the first night, Yahweh comes to Balaam and says, you should not go with them. You shall not curse these people, for they are blessed. Now immediately, as studiers of the scripture and readers of the word, your mind should jump straight to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. It's one of the most important passages of scripture. And this is going to be Abram's, he's not Abraham yet, his first encounter with, or his first promise from Yahweh. And this is what, what Yahweh promised um, Abram. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse 
those who curse you. To him who dishonors you, the ESV translate, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So one of the unique promises to Israel is that those who pronounce blessing upon Israel will be blessed. But if Balaam stands to curse Israel, he will be cut down. So God says, he kind of gives Balaam an opportunity to get out of this whole thing. You shall not curse Israel. Well, Balaam wakes up in the morning and he says to um, Balak's dignitaries, um, I can't go with you. The God of Israel said, no, go back. Now, what Balaam did not say was he said, the God of Israel said, never. What Balaam sent Balak's messengers going back to the Balak with was the idea that they didn't bring enough money. He didn't say, never going to happen. He just said, no, not, not today, not going to happen. And so round two, the scripture says that Balak sent messengers who were um, of, of higher, he sent more and higher dignitaries, higher princes, men, more men of, of even greater honor to come and to uh, to to buy Balaam. Now, what what the scripture says is that these men brought a divination fee. So obviously there was there was an culture of being able to buy Balaam. And there seems to be, even in our archaeological find, there seems to be this reputation for thousands of miles that you can buy Balaam to bless or curse whoever you want and, and that Balaam has some measure of spiritual authority and power and he can help you. So they come with a divination fee. Now the Hebrew here is actually a little bit tricky and scholars don't exactly know how to interpret it because it literally reads, they came with the divination. And so the idea may be, and some scholars, they, uh, all Hebrew scholars agree that they brought a fee, they brought money, but some believe that they actually came with the curses in hand. Like they had pre-written the curses that they wanted Balaam to pronounce upon Israel. That may be the case. Either way, they know exactly what they're doing. They've done this before. This is a modern practice in their day. And so the second batch, they come to Balaam and they say, um, we want you to, we want you to come curse Israel. And he says, um, you know, even if Balak were to give me all of the silver and gold and his own house, there's no way I'd be able to come. And when you read carefully, you recognize that Balaam is slimy. This is, and he's going to be called slimy for the rest of the Bible. Okay. He's, he's slimy. And so he's using this language, even if you gave me gold and silver in the very house of Balak, there's no way I could come to you. And so they say, name your price, Balaam. Essentially in our day, blank check, buddy. Whatever you ask for, we'll pay. So Balaam says, okay, well stay with me for another night. He stays with them for a night. And God says in the night, you can go with them. At this point, it's important to recognize that, that God is not the God of Balaam. He's, Balaam's not Moses. And so God is very much setting Balaam up. He's preparing to prop Balaam up as the great sorcerer who falls flat on his face before the power of God. Because again, Balaam's going to come and stand and get ready to curse the people of God. And every time he opens his mouth, the great witch doctor, the great sorcerer is just going to fumble blessings. 
And what we find, um, we'll do a little application here for a second. What we find is first, again, God is going to show that the wisdom of this world is foolishness. God is going to show that the highest ranking sorcerer that's even written about on, on walls that we're still finding, the highest ranking sorcerer of the day, the soothsayer, the great spiritualist, is a moron. God is going to show that his power is supreme, is sovereign, even over the witch doctors of the nations. Even over the sorcerers and the palm readers and the prophets that we find in our culture, God is supremely sovereign over them. And they can practice and conjure up all their new age mysticism. They can gather their crystals and their oils and sit in a circle and hum. But if God speaks one word, they will fall flat before him. And so as the church, the first thing we want to recognize is God has commanded us to not participate in these kind of acts. We're not to be a people who pursue witchcraft or, or new age ideas or ideologies in hopes of gaining spiritual power. We are to walk with the Holy Spirit knowing that the power of God on his church is far sovereign and supreme over every palm reader and peddler of spiritual practices in our day. Second, God is showing us here again that he is faithfully committed to his people. And so in Deuteronomy, there's a warning where God's warning Israel to walk in his ways. And he'll say in Deuteronomy, remember Balaam, son of Behor, how he came to curse you. And I made his cursings become a blessing before you. And Deuteronomy says, because I love you. So what we're going to continually find is that modern spiritualists will promise blessing and prosperity and wisdom. But we don't need any of that because the God of the universe loves us in Christ Jesus. We are fully and finally and totally blessed in Jesus Christ because of the blood of the Lamb shed for us. In Christ, we're to rest, we're to joy, we're to be satisfied, we're to find all of our nourishment, all of our promises for the future, all of our hope. We don't look for hope in astrology. We don't look for hope in in telling of signs and soothsaying. We look for hope in the promises of Scripture that our Redeemer will return and set all things right. All of our blessings are yes and amen in Jesus. The world can spit, wag her head, mock us, curse us, but God says those who curse you will be cursed and no one will ever remove my perfect love for my people. Finally, where we want to camp today before we close is this. To return to the dichotomy between Balaam and Moses, Balaam is trying to one-off get what he wants from the God of Israel. Balaam does not know Yahweh. Balaam has not laid on the tent, the tabernacle like Moses had and prayed before him. God says of Moses, I speak to prophets through signs and dreams and mysteries. But to Moses, I speak as a man speaks with his friend. Moses is in faithful, covenantal relationship with Yahweh. Balaam hopes to somehow bring an offering 
or practice some kind of sacrifice or perform some kind of sorcery to gain what he wants from Yahweh in a one-off act. And God, you guys hear me, God is not looking for people who will run to him just to get what they need in the moment. Now, God is not a, not a vending machine. I love vending machines, okay? They got great snacks. Not God. He's not a vending machine. He's not a God that we run to just in moments of panic. Now, you may have moments of panic in your life where you run to God, and he may bring deliverance and healing, and that's, that's good. But, but the idea here, from start to finish in the Scripture, is that God is looking for men and women who walk with him day in and day out who are intimate friends with the Lord. And, and God leads Moses. He's in, he's in daily covenantal relationship with Moses. Moses doesn't try to manipulate God to get what he wants, but he, he prays and he communes, he worships. Moses only has one God. Right? Nobody else for Moses. It's just Yahweh. And so in Moses and Yahweh's uh, relationship, we see this dynamic of friendship. And the secret to Israel's anointing and promise and prophetic gifts and miracles. Israel's going to have miracles. Israel's going to have signs and wonders, deliverances. The secret to Israel's miraculous power, supernatural strength, will never be one-off sorceries or lobbying up these kind of incantations and hoping that God will spit out our miracle because we put the dollar in. Israel's source of miraculous power will be in friendship, will be in covenantal, systematic relationship. And what we find, again, is that God's just not into this kind of sorcery. As a church, if we're the kind of people who just run to the altar every time we're in panic, and then for the next six months we really have nothing to do with the Father, we're in error. God is not looking for people who panic pray. Nothing wrong with panic praying, but you should panic pray on top of your daily intimate communion with God. You should be a person of prayer day in and day out. And what we're going to find in the Bible, and just work your way through, the first great man of God, Enoch, walked with God. And he was no more. Abraham is called a friend of God. God says of Moses, I speak with him as a man speaks with his friend. You can move to the New Testament and think of the Apostle John. He's actually known to be a great prophet. I don't know if you know this, but he like wrote Revelation. Okay. Um, prophet. John's source of, of gifting and strength is this, this keen intimacy he has with Christ. And then you start thinking about just the language. Um, there's no other there's no other pagan God who refers to himself as the father of his people. And then Jesus is going to refer to himself as the bridegroom of the bride. And all of the language that God's using for us is, is intimacy. And I will say plainly, I have, I have no qualms saying this. There are in our day, in our culture even, um, I don't know, I was 14 or 15 and hanging out with some friends who... Uh, who smoked a little bit of dope and, uh, we went to the, the place where, where people go, um, for the, we went to the flea market. Okay. And we go to the flea market so that my dope smoking friends, I was not smoking dope. Um, but they were, we went to the flea market so they could speak to 
the voodoo doctor. And I was, again, 14, standing there listening to her explain to them how to hang these these kind of ornaments and what to pray and what to, what to kind of chant. And they were going to have this spiritual breakthrough that that stuff's happening in our high schools. And, and they're going to be, I'm, I'm, I was trying to find a baseball documentary on Netflix and I'm, I have to look through all these documentaries about these, these great mind readers and, um, church, our, our nation is looking for power. For so long, the church has pretended as if we're just a social organization with a common ideological belief, but we're not. We're, we're a family, a koinonia, a fellowship of people who are in relationship with a supernatural God who's called us to preach the kingdom to the ends of the earth. And at many times and in many days, our culture's looking to see if we really have what we say we have. And so we need to be a people of power, period. We're not a people who are power hungry, but by God, when we pray for the sick, we need to see God move. But we don't want to be the kind of people who are just trying to get healing because we want to look like the sorcerer or the great spiritual one. That happens so many times in the charismatic church. And that's why we see so many men on TV fall flat. They put on their, their fancy outfit and sweat a lot. Okay, I don't, again, I don't know why. They like to sweat. They sweat a lot. And all of a sudden, we all throw money at them. And we prop them up as the great sorcerer of the day. And that's not what God's looking for. God doesn't want these kind of one-off sorcerers who bolster themselves up through power. God wants a church who walks in friendship, intimacy with him. Who love him day in and day out. And when God tells us, put your hands on the sick and pray, we just do it. And believe God to show up in power. When the church just walks with Jesus, you will bump into from time to time someone who's oppressed by demonic powers. And you don't have to bolster yourself up as a great spiritualist. You can just look them in the eye and say, in Jesus' name, I command you to go. We need the kind of church. We've got to be the kind of people who walk with the Holy Spirit day in and day out. And expect the Holy Spirit to move as we pray and as we minister. We want to remember this dichotomy between Balaam, the, the showman... And Moses, the friend. And we want to be friends of God, intimate lovers of God, who walk in great power, the gifts of the Spirit, and and who see great signs and wonders. You guys okay with me so far? To repeat, we're going to see in this text, God's going to show us that the greatest sorcerer for thousands of miles, it will fall flat before his power. Balaam has a reputation, but Balaam will lay on the ground and and grovel before Moses. Okay. Moses knows power. Balaam knows sorcery. So the first thing we see is that God's going to make the wisdom of this world be, be known as foolishness. Second, we see that God will not abandon his love for his people. He will not allow any sorcerer or any witch doctor to ever pry his fingers away from his bride. God really loves us. And third, we see that God is looking for a church And a people who understand intimate friendship with the Holy Spirit. Day in and day out, we love him. We adore him. We hear his voice. We walk in holy relationship with him. We're not just one off and hope to grab what we need from him. Every day we bless him. Every day we serve him. Every day we love him. From here, let's let's take a minute. If you would, maybe bow bow your head, close your eyes. And let's pray and ask God to seal this word. If you would pray with me, maybe, maybe open your hands. Jesus, we want to be a church who walks in intimate friendship 
with the Holy Spirit. We don't want to be a people who kind of cheaply try to access your power to look good in front of the nations. We want to be a people who know you in the morning and in the evening. Come on, tell them, I want to be sensitive to your voice, Holy Spirit. Or we want your presence in our homes. Lord, we don't just want your presence when we need power. We want your presence from morning to evening. And Father, in Jesus' name, we pray that from that intimacy, you would heal the sick in our midst. From that intimacy, you would put on display your supreme, sovereign, supernatural power over every dark art. Use us in this region. We ask in Jesus' name that those who are oppressed by demonic powers would find liberty and freedom. May every demonic assignment, activity, agenda fall flat before the people of God who know the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you use us, Lord, as we love you? In Jesus' holy name we pray. And everybody say amen. Amen, amen.